A very warm welcome to all of you joining us today for this live session at Latticework 2021. Uh, we've had a great day so far, and I am really excited for this session as well uh, with the one and only Michael Mobison, hosted by Sarab Madan. Uh, I'll uh, say a few words about Sarab and then ask Sarab to, uh, to introduce Michael properly and, uh, and lead this uh, conversation. Uh, Sarab uh, serves as managing member of Manveen Asset Management based in Glen Allen, Virginia. Before founding Manveen Asset Management, Sarab was a managing director and deputy chief investment officer at Markel Corporation where he worked closely with Markel's co-CEO, Tom Gaynor. Sarab also spent more than seven years at Google in various roles, including senior data scientist in engineering. Sarab holds an MS degree in engineering from the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, I am uh, really honored to have known Sarab for so many years. Uh, Sarab is really the kind of person that anyone who gets uh, in, in contact with him, I think, leaves uh, with a lot of value and uh, feeling like the center of attention. And, uh, you know, I, I remember back in the day, Sarab, those uh, talks at Google that you hosted, I mean, those were like Khan Academy before there was a Khan Academy. I mean, those were amazing. Um, and it's just continued ever since. Um, so why don't I now invite Sarab to say a few words about Michael and uh, get us launched into this conversation on expectations investing as applied to today's growth businesses. Sarab, over to you. Thank you so much, John, for those uh, kind words. Uh, reminds me something I heard a friend say recently. He said, I am luckier than I deserve to be. And, and that's how I feel. Uh, uh, but it's such a delight to, to get this chance to do this conversation with Michael, because he is not only an outstanding thinker, um, he, is an, he is a very, very generous um, friend and teacher to so many of us, uh, whether we are in his Columbia Business Classroom or on Twitter or, or just reading his books. He is uh, our teacher, he is our friend, he is our inspiration. Uh, Michael is the head of Consilient Research, CounterPoint Global, the author of several best-selling books and adjunct professor of finance at Columbia Business School where he's on the faculty of the Halbrun Center for Graham and Dodd Investing. He received the Dean's Award for Teaching Excellence in 2009 and 16. Uh, he has, uh, I, I can keep running through the list of accolades uh, and, and we can fill the entire hour and still have a long way to go through. Uh, but suffice it to say that uh, he is uh, the kind of person that Charlie Munger would say he has that kind of broad lattice work uh, of excellence across multiple fields. Uh, prior to joining CounterPoint Global, Michael was the director of research at Blue Mountain Capital, head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse and the chief investment strategist at Lag Mason Capital. Um, there's, there, there's a lot to Michael, but what we are here to talk about uh, is that Michael is the co-author with Alfred Rappaport of Expectations Investing. The first edition of this book was published in 2001. And this book has made a significant impact on a whole generation of value investors. We are here today to speak with Michael about the revised and updated second edition of this book that comes almost two decades after the landmark work was originally published. Um, so, so Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. Uh, it's been eight years since uh, <laughs> you did us at Google and, and talked about the Skill versus Luck book. Uh, I have been a fan of your work and on behalf of your readers and students, thank you so much for being a teacher to all of us. I was just wondering if you could set the stage, you know, by talking about what got you into writing and, and, and why the second edition now, two decades later. Oh, thank you so much. You're so gracious. I really appreciate it. And I, 
I had such a I had such a wonderful time with you, such a gracious host at Google many years ago. I have very fond memories of that. And you're you're not only kind to me, but also my whole family. So I really appreciate that. You know, I uh, the story is that I was uh, a liberal arts major. I was not an engineer. I, I, my parents wanted me to be an engineer, but I was not an engineer. Uh, and went on to Wall Street in the mid 1980s. And, and the truth is that I was very much overwhelmed, you know, by the lingo and, uh, you know, the rules of thumb that people were using and so forth. And uh, at what point one of the, I was in a training program at Drexel Burnham Lambert, and one of the guys in my training program gave me a copy of Al Rappaport's book, Creating Shareholder Value, which for me was a real professional epiphany. And, you know, to the degree which any of my work has, has, has influenced anybody for the better, I'm very grateful for that. But I'll just say this book completely changed my professional career. And um, there are three things that Rappaport talked about that I think all of us in the value investing community very much appreciate. The first is it's ultimately about cash and not accounting numbers. And I'm sure we'll get into this to a, to a great degree, but it, even though we, he made that argument in the 1980s, that, that argument is even more pressing and important today than it was back then. So we can come back and talk about that a bit. Second is that, and I think people lose sight of this. I might tweet about this in the next few days, you know, that, that competitive advantage or competitive strategy analysis and valuation really should be joined at the hip. And, uh, and, and the reason that it's the case is if you think about, you know, when you want to value a business properly, you have to think about the competitive position of the company within its industry and what the prospects look like. And the litmus test of a strategy, if you're an executive, is that it creates value. So we know that those two things are intimately related. And interestingly, I think in business schools, we do a bit of a disservice to our students because we teach those things separately. And, and everybody knows they're both important. But if you become an investor, you're operating at the pure intersection of those two things, not one or the other. They're both together. And then the third and final things, it was actually a chapter for executives, but it was called Stock Market Signals for Managers. And the argument was that as an executive, it's really important for you, to, if you want to create value for your stock price to deliver excess returns, it wasn't enough just to earn above your cost of capital on your investments <clears throat> or even meet the consensus, but rather you had to meet or exceed expectations over time. And that has very important implications, not only for remuneration, but for capital allocation and so on and so forth. So clearly that argument of you know, why executives need to understand their stock price is the opposite side of the same coin of why investors can use that same thing. So I, um, you know, I started using the Rappaport research, by the way, he at the time had a consulting firm, which had software. So I somehow persuaded my bosses to buy the software. So I had software and I was doing my, I was a junior analyst, but I was doing a lot of analyst analysis using sort of the Rappaport methodology that allowed me to meet him in May of 1991. So that was about 30 and one half years ago. And for me, again, it was just a thrill. I, I thought it was sort of the apex of my whole career, just shaking the guy's hand. And, and that allowed us, you know, he enjoyed, he invited me to join the faculty for the executive programs at Kellogg, where he was a professor, which led to this sort of deepening relationship. So at one point in the late 1990s, he said, let's, uh, you know, let's take these ideas that you've been working on from the investor side and, and marry them with the ideas from, from creating shoulder value to write expectations investing. And I should just provide the context because <clears throat> we signed the contract for the book in the late 1990s, right? Which is a little bit like the period we just went through, right? Everything was going up. It was like, everybody's excited. Everybody's doing their E-Trade accounts or whatever it is. And um, the book actually came out September 10th, 2001. So if you can just think about that for a moment, that's a day before a national tragedy in the midst of, and much less importantly, in the midst of a three-year bear market. So it, we signed it when things were as hot as they could be. And the book actually came out when things were as cold as they could be. So, um, you know, I, th I think it was, you know, the, the book was fine. And I think it did have an impact. Of course, it influenced, uh, you know, worked ahead for my teaching and so forth. But, you know, as, as we were thinking about over the years, obviously, some of the case studies got uh, old, there's some new developments in markets, including things like from public to, I mean, from, yeah, public to to, to private, from you know active management to indexing, the rise of intangibles. So there were a number of things that came along. And I think in, in some ways, going back through it, I was very gratified that many of the bones of the arguments have pretty much uh, held up pretty well, including lots of stuff around core ideas around valuation. But uh, there, was some, there were still a lot of ideas that we could bring up to date. So that's, that's sort of the genesis of round two. Um, I'll just say that Rappaport, of course, he's now in his late 80s. He's He's phenomenal. I talked to him all the time. I talked to him twice yesterday um, and still, you know, full of ideas and full of challenging our own views and so forth. So it's been and, and many people have been through this, but, you know, having a relationship with a mentor who we end up collaborating with. It's a very special. It's a very special thing, uh, which I'll, I'll cherish for, the, for my, you know, not just professionally, but also personally. So so that's the story how 
expectation investing 2.0. And now maybe I hope I hope the world doesn't come apart again with a new version of the book. But certainly the first one came out. The timing would not have been ideal from a marketing point of view. No, I think um, the the timing was ideal for a lot of investors who were, you know, in their formative years. And I talk to a lot of my friends, a lot of people I respect, and they tell me that uh, the book made a huge impact on how they think about things. Um, of course, Warren Buffett had talked about following the cash, like you said, uh, through his concept of owner's earnings. Um, but, but Michael, maybe talk a little bit about how cash is different from gap accounting. And, uh, and you say in your book that multiples can be used or misused. Uh, maybe help us uh, peel that layer a little deeper with an example or two, if we can. Yeah, absolutely. So the first point to make is that earnings themselves um, and earnings growth in particular, which seems to be what uh, drives a lot of executives and to some degree is a lot of the chatter you hear in the financial community, growth in and of itself is not value creating, right? So the key for us to focus on is what creates value. So, you know, Buffett talks about the $1 bill test, which is if I take a dollar and invest it in this business, will it be worth more than a dollar in the marketplace? And that has to happen. That happens only when you're earning above your cost of capital, right? And that's that's the core of business in general, right? You take, you take a resource, in this case money, you put it to work, and then it generates returns in excess of the of the cost of capital or the opportunity to cost that capital provider. So, so that's the first point just to make is that earnings themselves um, and earnings growth are not indicative of value. So you can, you can have earnings, two companies with the same earnings growth rate, one creates enormous amounts of value and the other don't. And that ties back to re, uh, return on invested capital, basically. Are they earning appropriate returns on their investment? So that's the first point. The second thing, and I would just say that this, I think this is what we've been spending a lot of time on the last couple of years. And I think an extraordinary source of distortion these days is um, and going back even to my own career. So if you go back to the 19, like when I started in this industry, something like tangible investments. So think about physical assets, factories and machines and inventory and so forth was about one and a half times, 1.8 times intangible investments. And intangible is obviously by definition, non-physical. So branding, training, those kinds of even R&D, software code writing and so forth. Um, that relationship is completely flipped. In fact, our, our 2021 estimate, the dust hasn't settled, obviously, but it's about two to one ratio the other way around. So intangibles are vastly larger than tangibles. Why that's important is because, of course, intangible investments, for a bunch of weird accounting vagary reasons, are expensed. And so, uh, once again, we're, we're, we're losing the trail of actually this idea of investment and return on investment through the through the accounting today. So this is almost the opposite. So the first thing I said is you can have growth that's not value creating. In this case, you can have companies that are actually not only not making a lot of money, but actually even perhaps losing money that are actually creating an enormous amount of value. And I think that one way to, to make this a little bit more concrete is to go back to an example. And many, many of the listeners will know about this or be familiar with this, but for the first 15 years that Walmart was public, it, by the way, its stock price performance was 3x the benchmark. So it was extraordinary as a great stock, but it had negative free cash flow for each of the first 15 years. So it had positive earnings, but they were investing more than they earned, and hence they had negative free cash flow. So this is like one of the trick questions in business school, right? Which is, is free cash, negative free cash flow good or bad? And the answer is, it depends, right? So if you're investing at high returns, you want to do as much of that as you possibly can. So negative free cash flow is actually fantastic. And so you can apply the same logic to what's going on today. So you might, you know, a very simple subscription business, you know, usually the customer cost is up front, and then you have the cash flow streams that come down the road. So if that is an NPV or tra transaction for the company, the fact the faster they grow, the more they're going to absorb these upfront costs, and even though they're going to have higher cash flows down the road. So, so that that's the basic principle is, is to follow ultimately the cash. And then there, there are other issues, like, of course, there are a lot of management judgments. So we know all these things. So managements have discretion as to how they think about depreciation schedules, uh, amortization periods, uh, warranty reserves, all sorts of stuff like that. So there's wiggle room that companies can can uh, operate within. So the point is just look beyond. And, and you mentioned owner earnings. That's the, you know, in the, in the book, we argue, obviously, for a focus on free cash flow, which is not not what most people talk about on Wall Street, but free cash flow, truly a finance term, which if you, it's effectively levered, uh, the levered version of free cash flow is owner earnings. It's the same concept. So, so I think that there's a very clear tie back to Buffett and how he would think about or argue that the value of the business should operate. 
and again, simplistic measures. And I think, so again, you're getting it both sides. Some people say this company doesn't make money, hence I'm gonna throw it out. That doesn't make any sense. Or this company is growing rapidly and it's fantastic. That also doesn't make sense. We need another la layer of scrutiny to really understand what's going on. So if I, if I wanna summarize this for myself and correct me if I'm wrong, one key takeaway is that it, it all starts with returns on capital. And if returns on invested capital are below your cost of capital, then growth actually takes away value rather than adds value. So you want to first understand what are the returns on capital. And I think in the book, you do a great job of using the Domino's pizza example and helping people like move from one number to another to actually concretely measure. And uh, you know, as public service, I would just like to tell everybody on the call and viewers who will watch later to go through the website and the online tutorials. Michael, can you talk maybe a little bit about that? And and by the way, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I was making mistakes as I went along and I emailed Michael and, and he helped correct me. <laughs> I know, no, but it was good because I was, every time you sent me, because you're a really smart guy. So every time you send me email, I'm like, I start to sweat, panic. I'm like, I better better make sure. And, and you actually had some, what you're pointing out were actually very logical things. And there, it was a slightly, con, con, you know, it was because of their franchise business, slightly confusing. But anyway, no, I think you're, you're making a really important point. I think one of the things that, that Al and I really wanted to make sure that we did was to make these ideas accessible. And, and, and by the way, this is my impression is that if you're really a novice investor and you've really never done any investing at all, some of these ideas will feel a little bit overwhelming, I think, even if you go through the book. But if you're, if you've been around, some you have some you know you're somewhat conversational in accounting and so you're comfortable with numbers and so forth you're going to find it very fruitful and i found in this most recent wave of talking to and, and many of this is former students but talking to investors who are professional investors they this has been the richest set of conversations i've had in a long time so they found a lot that that they found provocative but we want to make this very accessible so as a consequence we built a website called expectationsinvesting.com so it's very straightforward and there's a typical propaganda on you know the authors and promotions and all that but the thing, you're exactly right. What I would draw people's attention to is there's a module called online tutorials where we offer 10 tutorials, um, each of which has a little, it's obviously it discusses what's going on, but in every case, there's a, well, not every, I think most cases, there's a downloadable Excel spreadsheet. So you, you mentioned Domino's Pizza. So I think it's tutorial eight. How do you do a price implied expectations? So you're going to go to the book and you're going to see how we did and we sh share the numbers and the assumptions and so forth. But you can go to the on online tutorial, click on tutorial eight and download an Excel spreadsheet. We'll have the exact same numbers as what's in the book. And the beauty of that, and I found this, by the way, when I was learning myself, I had to, when I was learning from Rappaport's book, I created spreadsheets to replicate what he was doing because I didn't really understand all the details of how the calculations worked. So you're going to have, you know, it may be good to do it on your own, but but you're going to have that spreadsheet there as a backup to see exactly how we came up with all these calculations. The other thing that also provides you with a free template for as you want to put in other companies, whatever you can do that as well. So it's a, it's a framework that should be fairly robust. So, yeah, thank you for for pointing that out. And again, it, it's free. It's part of the book, but I think it's really important to try to uh, facilitate people's using these ideas to make sure it's as accessible as possible. So that, yeah, uh, expectationsinvesting.com. Thank you so much for actually you know sharing that work with us because mm -hmm. I found it really helpful as I was reading chapter by chapter to actually do the tutorials one at a time. But but Michael, for the also the additional benefit of our viewers. Um, Talk about the price implied expectations yeah. approach, which is the heart of this book. And how does that differ or how does that complement, you know, the discounted cash flow? Right. So, and maybe I'll just, I'll give, I, I'd love everybody to buy it, of course, but uh, but here's the book in about 30 seconds, right? And then we can break it down into different pieces. So, so there are really three steps to the process. One is, as you just pointed out, understanding price implied expectations. Second is introducing strategic and financial analysis to determine or judge whether those sets of expectations are too high, too low, or G about right, which is the truthful answer in most cases, which means you put it into the move it on and move on. And then the third are the, the, the results, which is do I buy or sell or do I do nothing? So stepping back to the first step, I mean, the first argument we made, and it's, it's actually sort of a follow through for our discussion on earnings is we argued the appropriate way to value businesses at present value future cash flows. By the way, I don't think anybody, in, certainly in theory, 
uh, disagrees with that. The question is, how do we make that a practical uh, set of concepts? And so there's a lot of devil in the details in terms of things like continuing value and so on and so forth. But I, I think we argue on balance, if you do these things intelligently, you can really get a big insight. Now, it's interesting, and I, I was trying to actually study the, the, the psychological phenomenon behind this, but it just feels like everybody wants to place a value on a company and then compare the value to the price, right? They feel like I, it's worth 12 times EBITDA or whatever it is, or 25 times earnings. They feel like they have to, it's almost like a volition. I feel like I have to value it. And as you gathered from expectations investing, we're taking a very different tack, which is to say, the only thing we know for certain in this world is the stock price, right? And uh, so let's reverse engineer. And essentially what we're doing in the price implied expectations exercise is saying, using a discounted cash flow model, what do I have to believe about the value drivers? And those are predominantly sales, margins, and capital intensity. What do I have to believe for this stock price to make sense? And if you're doing price implied expectations correctly, you should be sort of uh, have no judgment, just sort of say like, what do I have to believe? So you're looking at XYZ company, what is, what is priced in? What do I have to believe? And then the second step is really where you're rolling up your sleeves. You're, you're examining history, the, the company's performance, maybe the industry history. And then you're really doing strategic and, and, and competitive strategy analysis to say, okay, given what we know about how the business works and how it's going to unfold and its opportunity set, does this set of expectations seem appropriate or again, too high or too low? And then that will lead you to, and, and by the way, it's very important that when you leave that step, you're going to have what we really want you to do is have scenarios, right? So uh, different, you know, upside, downside, and it shouldn't be bull bear case. It should be more than that, but you should have scenarios and associated probabilities. And again, we could talk about how to, how to do that, but, and now you're thinking more in terms of expected value terms, right? So to me, the notion of the value is expected value and margin of safety, which I think is one of the core ideas from, from Graham and really, you know, something we continue to teach at Columbia Business School, but margin of safety would be that the price is substantially below the expected value, right? So there, there are ways I can lose, but there are many, many more ways that I can win. So I built that in and then you make your buy sell decisions and, you know, in the buy or sell decisions, obviously we then introduce things like, you know, uh, sensitivity to taxes and friction costs and so on and so forth. So, so that's the basic, uh, that's the basic idea of how to do this. And, uh, the key is to, in step one in particular, is to use the best of the DCF model without necessarily forcing your, your own assumptions on, on it. And, uh, and, and by the way, the last thing I'll just mention, I'll, I'll give a plug because I, I think that there are a couple things in this book that are, um, it, by the way, when you say, we explain expectations investing to, to investors, everybody sort of nods, goes, oh yeah, 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 I get that, right? And they all think, everybody thinks that they're doing it, but actually it's remarkable how few people actually do it this way, right? So it's actually it's quite scarce in terms of people's approaches. But I would say there are two ideas that I found to be so important that are not used uh, as well as they should be. The first is chapter three, and it's about this concept called the expectations infrastructure. And so, you know, it's, a, it's um, there's a long story behind how we came up with this, but basically this is how you do sensitivity analysis. And so the, the, the key is that you have these things we call value triggers, which are sales costs and investments. And every business everywhere in the world has these three things. But those are too blunt to map onto the ultimate value drivers, which drive the DCF model. So we refine them through what we call the value factors. These are six microeconomic shapers, the ultimate value drivers. And this allows you to understand sensitivities. And so key issues like operating leverage. Operating leverage is about absorbing pre-production costs, right? So I build a factory with 100 widgets and I'm now making 50s. I go from 50 to 100, how I'm absorbing pre-production costs and that improves my profitability. Where economies of scale, as I get bigger, I can do things cheaper. So, so we wanna be very overt as we think about different scenarios for, for example, sales growth, how those flow through the value factors and what that means for ultimate value. So this is a way to have a much, much richer thought process, a much, much richer dialogue, how to capture um, these key, uh, you know, basically how Delta EBIT and Delta sales relate to one another. And so that's the first big idea. The second big idea is this idea of base rates. And, you know, this is a, this is really goes into the decision-making literature to a great degree, but the, the argument there is that rather than looking at every company uniquely as you're the only person ever having done the work before, right. Or sell side is to say, let's think about this. This company is an instance of a reference class. And can we select an appropriate reference class and understand how, how things have unfolded for that reference class and does that inform how we should think about the prospects for this particular company? And, and I think that many investors, again, when you explain the idea, everybody gets it, but 
most investors, most analysts operate as if their whole, you know, they're unique in some way and their analysis is everything versus understanding the sweep of corporate performance, right? Which again, can be very informative for understanding prospects. So, so that's those two big ideas, I would say expectations of infrastructure. If nothing else, people should, should look at that. And then second is integrating base rates is really valuable. And again, vastly underutilized as a, as a, as an econo- as a tool for investing. Thank you. Let's go through an example here. Um, you know, it, I worked in a tech company before, and <laughs> I've, you know, in learning about investing on my own, what I've found is that sometimes you encounter these two extremes of thoughts. Uh, one is, you know, valuation is the lowest earnings multiple, and the other extreme. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying these are right or wrong, but but one viewpoint is, you know, growth is all that matters. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're buying a good quality business and it's growing, the multiples will take care of themselves. Um, but I'm sort of, you know, what your work grounded me in was, uh, let me just quote Ted Lasso here, curious, uh, <laughs> not judgmental. Uh, that that element of approaching this with curiosity rather than a preconceived judgment or opinion was very helpful. And you said that as intangibles have grown, we cannot necessarily depend on gap accounting to do our valuation work for us. So just like Mr. Buffett said, you know, don't just look at earnings, look at owner's earnings by taking in account of investments on the capital uh, cash flow statement. You said that even on the income statement, what you see as an expense, uh, as an operating expense, could actually be a capital expenditure. And in one of your talks, you used Microsoft as an example. Uh, and I'm sure men, this is a company that will be familiar to many of our viewers. So I was wondering if you could take that as an example and make this just a little more concrete for everybody here. Sure, absolutely. And, that, and thank you for that introduction. Uh, to the idea. And, and we wrote a piece in uh, the fall of 2020, so a little over a year ago, called One Job, where we actually go through the Microsoft. So, so anybody wants to refer, if you just Google One Job, Mobis, and something like that, you're, I'm sure that it'll pop up. And the reason we selected Microsoft is precisely for all the reasons you just cited, right? Which is it's, it's, it's obviously been around for a long time. It's a very profitable company. They've reported in a very consistent fashion for a long period of time. But there's one other little uh, backstory to this, which is um, there's a there's a whole academic community working on this intangible issues. Uh, Carol Corrado is one of the most famous, but there's a guy named Charles Holton, Chuck Holton at University of Maryland. And Holton wrote a paper in 2006. So, so, so uh, he wrote a paper specifically about Microsoft. So one of the challenges with this intangible thing is it's, it's very in- easy to say that this is a big issue in the aggregate. But it actually, it's one of these weird things that when you get down to the specific, it's, the specifics, it becomes even more difficult. So what Holton, so when you think about, exactly to your point, when you think about, I'm taking SGNA and I'm thinking to myself, how do I separate SGNA into the sort of what I need to run the business to keep the trains running on time and deliver the mail? And then what's discretionary is an investment, right? So these are, the, so the first big question is what percent of, of SGNA is in each bucket? And then the second question is, uh, which is secondary, but what second question is what is an appropriate asset life or you know amortization period for those things? So Holton did this in a paper in 2006. So I was like, all right, rather than having a big debate about this, we're going to just default to the Holton numbers. But to give you some sense of this, um, the uh, so so what happens is we're going to argue that what matters at the end of the day is free cash flow, right? This is about, but basically again you can you can use the term owner earnings. It's going to be sort of an equivalent concept. But free cash flow, just to be clear, is the, the first you start with NOPAT, which is net operating profit after taxes, right? And NOPAT's an incredibly important number to use in finance because it is the, it's the unlevered cash earnings of a business. So NOPAT is the unlevered cash earnings of a business. So it's a super handy number because the numerator of ROIC, which you alluded to before, it's a number from which we subtract investments to come up with free cash flow. It's a number from which you subtract a capital charge to do economic profit, right? So NOPAT is sort of your central number in finance. And then from NOPAT, we subtract investments in future growth. And classically stated investments are working capital changes, which in Microsoft's case, by the way, is actually a source of cash because they have a negative cash conversion cycle. Um, CapEx, which we typically express net of depreciation. So it's CapEx above and beyond depreciation. So we're assuming that maintenance CapEx and depreciation are roughly a push. 
We can come back to that, by the way, it's something we're working on right now, but only above and beyond. And then acquisitions, right? So we need to count, account for acquisitions as well. So that's no PAT minus investments is free cash flow. Free cash flow then becomes, by definition, the pool of cash available for distribution to all the claim holders. Mm -hmm. Let me make a little side note is that when you when companies talk about free cash flow or many investors talk about free cash flow, what they're talking about is cash flow from operations minus CapEx, which is, if you just heard my definition, it's actually a distinct number. So it's different. So so I'm using a finance term, but when you hear people talk about it every day or read an analyst report, they may be using a different definition. So let's just be super clear. So what is happening is what we're doing is with the Holton guidance is we're taking some of those expenses. And as you pointed out correctly, we're making them capital investments. So essentially what you're doing is moving something from the NOPAT line down to the investment line, right? So what happens, of course, is NOPAT goes up. Investment goes up by the exact same measure, by the exact same amount. So notice that free cash flow doesn't change, but the mix changes quite dramatically, right? So I, I, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but roughly speaking, um, the, the the NOPAT numbers for Microsoft go up by, I think it's seven or eight billion. So it's about a 10 or 15% lift. Investment goes up by a higher percent because they're obviously, they invest a lot more, less than me. So the investment goes up like 80% and then free cash flow doesn't change. So you say, okay, well, why are you going through all this effort? If free cash flow is the same, like what's the big deal? The answer is exactly what you said before, which was exactly correct. You're, you, you sort of made the point. What I need to understand is how much money am I investing? What's the return on investment, right? And that's going to be giant, generate your future NOPAT. Well, if I don't know what my investment mag magnitude is, right? If I'm confusing it between my income and my, then I really don't have a grasp on the business. So that's why we called the piece one job. And we argued that the one job of an investor is to understand the most basic unit of analysis of how the company makes money and you need to make these adjustments. So now here's the thing, Microsoft is old, it's big, it's super profitable. It's, it's, by the way, it's a spectacular business, just to, just to be clear. The other thing I'll mention is when you do capitalize the intangibles, you of course place them on the balance sheet. That means their balance sheet becomes much bigger and their ROICs uh, go from something in the high 50s, which is spectacular, obviously, to something in the high 30s, which is still spectacular. Right? So it's not quite as, it's still spectacular in the realm of spectacular, spectacular, but not quite as much. And and you know that that's a step toward reality, right? You know that 50 seems high and 30 seems more grounded. And there's some other adjustments you can make to even get a, a more realistic estimate. We wrote a piece earlier this year. It's very technical, but we wrote a piece called Market Expected Return on Investment, MEROI. And if you do MEROI, it's actually even lower than that number, uh, which I think, again, is another step toward reality. So so Microsoft is a good example. But again, it, that when I'm saying it's a 10 to 15% lift, that's actually fairly muted. When you go into younger companies that are investing even a higher proportion of SG&A, the lift is even bigger. And so you can imagine that you get a very, very, very different portrayal. Now, we wrote a piece called, I think it was called Classifying for Clarity. We wrote this a few months ago. And it argued that this, the standard statement of cash flows which by the way, you know, it's funny because I, I actually really like the statement of cash flow. That's usually where I start when I look at things. So I can get net income and I can't get margin structures, but I can get net income. I can get working capital. I get, you know, okay. So I get a feel for things pretty quickly. And what we argue is there are at least, there are three and maybe even four adjustments that you need to make to understand the business. And they're just, the way it's presented is wrong. And as a consequence, we said, when you make these adjustments, for example, Amazon's earnings by our reckoning would almost double from their reported. So instead of earning 20 billion, they earn roughly 40 billion. So that means all things being equal, the multiples half of what people claim it is. Even the EBITDA numbers, if you make the adjustments as we suggest, the multiple gets cut essentially in half. So you get a very different portrayal of the economics of the business by making these adjustments. And again, I'm not pretending that any of our assumptions are perfect, but I do think they're all steps toward reality. And this is incredibly exciting, by the way, as an investor, right? Because because what we, what we have is this massive misspecification in our accounting. What we have is a lot of people who are using rules of thumb and are lazy. And if we, as a community, can do a little bit of a better job in understanding the core economics of the business and being able to recast the financial statements to get a better and clearer view of what's going on, boy, that's exciting. And that's what I tell my students. I mean, I know investing's hard, right? And it's a grind and so on and so forth. But I'm like, this is a kind of a cool, exciting time, right? Because if you are just a little bit ahead of everybody else and have better insights than everybody else, it should be really productive. So anyway, that's that's a long-winded answer to your really excellent question. No, thank you. That, that, that was very helpful and and hopefully sets the context for, for my next question, which mm -hmm. is, you said this approach, despite making so much sense and despite everybody just nodding their head and saying it makes sense, very few people actually 
do the work and do it. Uh, why is that? I don't know. It's a good question. So I, I'll mention that my first day of class at Columbia Business School, I, you know, I sign, you know, sort of some stuff from security analysis, again, not the details, but just sort of the high level importance of margin of safety and Mr. Market metaphors and so forth. But the other thing I assign is a 13 cha page chapter from a book. Uh, and, the, and the chapter is called Christ on Value. And the chapter is written by Stephen Christ, uh, who is a horse handicapper by training. And, and Chris himself, by the way, is a very entertaining, uh, very colorful guy. He, uh, he grew up in New York. He's a great piano player, went to Harvard, studied like English literature or something like that, you know. Uh, but one day his friends dragged him out to the dog racetrack <laughs> and he was like enamored with all the numbers and so forth. So he ended up after graduating from Harvard, going to New York Times and being the horse race correspondent. So all the horse racing articles were written by this guy. So he learned a lot about horse racing. So he wrote this 13 page uh, summary called Christian Value about how to think about handicapping, just broadly speaking. And he's got a line in this in this chapter. And by the way, so I recommend everybody read it because it's it's one of the best 13 pages you'll read about investing. Basically, you can go through the document and strike the word horse and put in the word stock. And it completely applies to what we do every day. But he's got this one line where he says, it's all about basically saying it's all about expectations. And he says something like every most people think that they're doing this, but very few actually do. So I just don't know. And that's why I said before, I, I was so keen to say, is there a psychological thing? Because you're more in control if you say I've calculated value and then I'm going to compare that to the price. You're more in control than saying, gee, the price is this thing. You know, I'm, I'm reacting versus uh, being proactive. But um, I think there's an enormous amount of power. So Chris's point on handicapping is you don't make money by figuring out which horse is going to win the race. You make money by figuring out which horse has mispriced odds. And likewise, in investing, you know, we, I, I think our subtitle of our talk today is about growth investing, but we know that growth investing as a factor, at least, has, has struggled for many times. Why? Why? Because expectations are running too high. So these, these could be fantastic businesses, wonderful value creating businesses, but they're all those beautiful things are priced in and then some, and as a consequence, they may not be great stocks, right? So the old thing, great companies are not always great stocks. And this is exactly the point of all that. So, so I don't know, I don't know psychologically why we don't do more of this or don't, don't feel comfortable with it. It completely resonated with me from the very beginning and asking this question, what do I have to believe for me to invest? Or what do I have to believe for the stock to make sense? I think is a really sensible question. Now, I do want to add one other thing, because I thought this is where you were going to go with it, but there's, a, you know, we have a chapter dedicated to this, you know, I think it's chapter eight, where we basically say, look, um, you don't want to just, just if you're, if it's hard for you to come up with a value based on what you can touch and feel in the business today, you don't want to completely dismiss uh, the stock because there could be the potential for real options. And, and I don't want to get too carried away with this because I think people should be very measured in how they think about this, but I think it's also important to not dismiss it. Okay. So a real option is exactly as it sounds, it's, we're all familiar with financial option, right? Which is the right, but not the obligation to do something typically calls is to buy a stock at a certain price at a certain period, within a certain period of time, put would be to sell a stock at a certain price. Okay. So a real option would be the corporate equivalent of that, which is the right, but not the obligation to make an investment in the business. And uh, these real options can be potentially valuable. The, the classic example is an extraction industry. So you know, you have a oil well that is productive, it's, it's NPV positive or value creating if oil is $60 a barrel or higher, oil today happens to be $40 a barrel. And you'd say, so it's NPV negative to drill. You say, well, is that valueless? No, the answer is it's not valueless because there's some probability that oil will go over $60, right? So we measure that usually with volatility. And as a consequence, there's some option value to that, right? The right, but not the obligation to do something if the conditions are met. And so I like to say that certain companies have real options. And, you know, that's usually associated with really great management teams that understand uh, how to, to, to nurture and ultimately exercise options appropriately. Typically high, you know, early industries. So it has to be a volatile industry, right? It has to be a lot, a lot of change going on. So this is and not- gonna... You use Shopify as an example. Yeah. And version, the first version of the book, and I think it was mostly you talked about luck before, but mostly luck, we used Amazon and Amazon ended up being like, you know, because AWS was not a twinkle in Jeff Bezos's eye back in 2001, right? And that, that ends up being a very big part of their story. 
So um, that that worked out. But yeah, we use Shop, Shopify. So and I think Toby is the CEO gets this. They're they're obviously it's a fast changing and burgeoning industry. Market leaders tend to be better than others. And the other thing I'll just say, you mentioned 2001 being an interesting time. It was a very interesting time in one way, which was uh, that that it was it was a great time to invest actually, right? Because you're you're sort of getting things toward the bottom. But the flip side is, if you're a company and you have an option, you need access to capital, right? You need to be able to you need to be able to spend money to exercise an option. And if there's no access to capital, capital markets are are shut down because of you know bad equity markets or credit markets are spooked or whatever it is. That becomes difficult. So. So yeah, that's the other thing I would just say like that again, so we have a little checklist of where you might want to think about this. Shopify, you mentioned is a good example where, where I would not dismiss based on what I can touch and feel immediately. But the key is, as you know, as, as value investors, right? We, we, want to, we, want to, we want to be long options and not pay much for them, right? So that's the idea. So I, I want to acknowledge them and I don't want to pay too much for them at the same time, right? Yes, um, there's a million questions, but, but I'll just... Uh you know, maybe take two or three and then we'll open it up to the wider Q&A. You said this book is not just written for investors, but also operators and business leaders. Uh, with this framework, who are some business leaders that you have found who are willing to invest with a longer term framework that is grounded in rationality? Yeah, no, exactly. Look, uh, it's hard to beat Will Thorndike's book, The Outsiders, right? Now it's a little bit old and and we might think about the the folks we would add to our, you know, all-star or hall of fame in terms of capital allocators. But to me, that's the issue, right? Which is capital allocation. And and it's interesting. I mean, you've had this experience for a long time. I mean, you talk to some companies and, and these are, you talk to CEOs and CFOs, but CEOs in particular, and these are really well-intentioned people. They're really hardworking. They love their companies. They really want to succeed. And they just don't have a North Star for capital allocation. It's very funny, right? Because the skills that got them in that seat are not the skills that they need to uh, deploy every single day. So to me, it's really about thinking about capital allocation, right? So obviously, the convenient example, if we were to add to that list, we would add the Rails Brothers. We would add Bezos, right? You know, We'd add like the obvious people that History has now demonstrated these people to distinguish themselves versus others. But that's to me, when I talk to a management team, the key thing is I want to know they have a, they have a North Star. They have a nose for, for, for value creation and understanding capital allocation in general. And I, I find, I mean, capital allocation is obviously so pivotal, both as an investor and as an executive. And it's stunning how few of these executives really, again, it's what Buffett talked about. I mean, the skills that get you into the seat are not the skills that you need to deploy every day. And that becomes a really big problem. So, and interesting, if you read, you know, Will's book, I mean, a lot of those executives kind of were quiet insiders, right? They were like, they kind of like came up through the organization. They had weird backgrounds. They weren't necessarily, right? And they, and they thrived. And the reason I, I I'm actually particularly uh, you know like particularly like that book is that one of the chapters is about Bill Steeritz and I was a food analyst back in the day that, and I and I covered Ralston Purina so I was Bill Steeritz was one of the guys that I dealt with and I I'll just tell you one quick story I don't know if this is out there so I uh, my one of my first reports I wrote I was a junior analyst so just to be clear I'm low like low guy in the organization right. And so my senior analyst says to me, hey, listen, you know, nine to five, you're my guy. But if you want to go work on the weekends or at night or whatever, you can do whatever you want. And if you do some decent research, we'll publish it together. Right. I'll, my name will be on the top. Your name on the bottom. So I'm like, all right, great. So I did a report on Ralston Purina and I made it. It was like pure Rappaport. Right. So it was really here are the businesses, here are the value drivers, cost of capital, expectations, the whole shoot and match. Right. It's a Ralston Purina report. And my senior analyst reads it. And he sort of flicks it back at me and goes, this will be of some mild academic interest, but like no one in the real world will ever care about it. Right? So I'm like, all right, well, I'm the junior analyst, whatever. So we published the report. And uh, a, a week or two later, we get a call. This is all pre-internet, of course, right? So a week or two later, we get a call from, the, from Bill Steeritz's office. And they say, wow. Bill Steeritz read your report and really liked it and would like to invite you to St. Louis to talk to the senior management team about how you think about valuing businesses. And that for me was, you know, besides Rappaport obviously being an extraordinary, you know, this is one of those attaboy moments where Bill Steeritz, uh, and he, by the way, was, you know, he was a very low key guy, didn't really talk to the street. That was just incredible, right, to say. And he was considered the Warren Buffett of the industry, right? To have him come out and say, um, come talk to us about that. And, you know, Steerts, for example, was very early in buying back stock, for instance, which was considered, everybody thinks about it now as sort of commonplace. But in the 1980s, 
it was considered a little bit wacky to, to buy back your stock, right? And there, and there, and so the other thing I'll say was interesting is that I visited the company one time and they gave me a stack of old research reports. So I had research reports right from the time that Steerts became CEO. So 81, 82, 83. And there are, there are analyst reports saying like, oh, if they buy back stock, it's going to erode book value and they're going to have negative net worth. And then they're going to, their credit quality is going to go out there, you know, to go to hell. And, you know, it's just interesting how people approached it. They were not at all focused on the cash flows and they were focused on all these counting metrics, which completely led them down the wrong trail, right? Which is so fascinating. So I know, again, an another very long-winded answer to your great question, but I think it's, to me, it boils down to value creation. And you're exactly right. Just like a, an, a, an investor, you want to take a long-term view of value creation. But by the way, the key is not long-term per se. The key is to make money, right? So sometimes things pop up and they're short-term and you just take advantage of them to make money. So, so companies don't have to be, not everything has to be. And by the way, the other thing is long-term. The long-term is an aggregation of short-terms, right? So in other words, these things are not in, they, they, they're compatible with one another. They're not one or the other, right? So um you, yeah, you need to deliver short-term results to get long-term good, longer-term returns. They both they go together. Yeah, I like to think that you've got to make it through the short term to, to get right. to the long term. Um, you've worked previously with. Um, by the way, Michael, thanks for these anecdotes. They are very, very inspiring uh, for for many of us. So really appreciate you sharing that. You've worked with Bill Miller previously, and you now work with Dennis Lynch. Um, I was just wondering from, from your vantage point, if you were to compare and contrast their investment styles, um, maybe how each of them have employed expectations investing in their own way, if you've seen it, uh, just anything that, you know, in the spirit of, you know, what's interesting and inspiring. Uh, yeah, I love that. By the way, they're both, for me, they're both wonderful. They were both wonderful colleagues. Um, obviously, Dennis is a colleague now. They're just great. And so, you know, what I would say, why, why I always admired Bill was that he, uh, and, and I knew, I've known Bill for probably close to 30 years and worked with him for nine years of those 30 years. Um, I, but I would say the one common characteristics between, and, and by the way, they are friends too, but one of the common characteristics is that both of them are extraordinarily open-minded. And so they're readers, they're thinkers, they're restless, intellectually restless. And um, that's a, it's, it's a very, like I say, like, it's easy to say, but it's actually very cognitively taxing to do that, right? So to be constantly reading and thinking and examining your own views and so forth. And I think both those guys do that really well. The other thing I'll say about Bill is <clears throat> it's important that Bill grew up with sort of a traditional, very Graham and Dodd value orientation. So he founded Value Trust with Ernie Keeney in 1982. And by the way, people don't really realize this, but the first five or six years of Value Trust, it was the number one fund in America. It, it was it did better than Magellan. It was extraordinary, but they were doing, they're buying things at 0.3 times book and selling at 0.8 times book. It was very Graham and Dottish. And then they went, the fund went through a difficult spell. And that's when Bill, I think, was sort of introduced to the ROIC world. And by the way, I think Dennis also at Columbia Business School in the late 1990s, early 2000s was introduced to the ROIC kind of mindset. And I think that had a big imprint on both of those guys. Uh, as well, just so understanding good businesses. But interestingly, the other thing I think is in common is that, um, and, and Dennis also started off in industries that were more traditional, is that both of them, and, and I don't like this term versus growth versus value, because that's, I think it's a poor characterization, but both of them have been comfortable in operating in spheres, of, we'll call it technology, broadly speaking, where there's a lot of uncertainty, but if you see certain patterns or certain strategic positioning, uh, you can, you can, con can confer a great advantage. So uh, both those guys, you know, like Bill in the 1990s made a ton of money on AOL and Dell. Bill, by the way, amazingly got out of almost all the technology stuff in 2000. It was just stunning how, how astute he was at that. Um, so that's the other thing I think they share in common. So just two really great guys. And, um, you know, the other thing about I'll just say about Dennis now, since I'm working with him today, is that. He's not just, he's just, he, first of all, that intellectual stuff's really important, um, but he's just a great leader in the sense that he sets the tone organizationally and thinks about every person in the organization about how he or she uh, can add value, right? So what can they do that they're passionate about? What do they bring to the table that's unique? And he really encourages them to do that in a, in a way that serves the value of the organization. So it's just, it's a very special, that's a very special sensation. And, you know, so it's not, you know, it's not, it's, it's pretty flat organization. There's not a lot of ego. There's an enormous amount of sharing and it's, set, it's just set, the tone is set from the top. And that was true for both, both these organizations. And, and they're both 
core at their core learning organizations, which is super fun. So if you're, if you're a student of investing, if you're a student of the world, if you're curious, um, these are just great organizations. They were great, you know, LMCM back in the day and, and Counterpoint Global, great organizations to be embedded in because every day is super fun because you're, you're growing, you're learning, you're, you're being challenged, you're finding out you're wrong, you know, so on and so forth. Wonderful. My final question, Michael, um, investing or beyond, could you talk about some ideas or people who have made a big impact or been key inspirations for you? Yeah. So some of the obvious ones um, to me, you know, I've always been a big Buffett fan, of course, but I have, I think I've taken more from Munger than I have from Buffett. And so obviously the idea of the mental models approach, I, I don't know if Munger still himself is as advocating for it as, as enthusiastically as he did 25 or 30 years ago, but that framework for me has been incredibly important. Um, related to that, it would be an institution, which is the Santa Fe Institute. I've been involved there for many years. You know, I first went out there 25 years ago and served on the board for 20 years and was chairman of the board for eight and a half years. And that is another, it's an institute that's dedicated to basic research. You know, you're a scientist at heart too. I mean, you know, that, that I, I think the key is that it's, it's across disciplines, right? And the argument is that most of the most interesting problems in the world, and this is true for investing too, are at the intersections of disciplines, right? So we need to break down these disciplinary barriers. SFI has mm -hmm. been great. The other one I'll mention is E.O. Wilson, and this is related to E.O. Wilson. The brother is a beautiful new biography of E.O. Wilson by Richard Rhodes, Dick Rhodes, um, called The Scientist. And uh, E.O. Wilson is most famous for his work on ants. So he's like the leading ant guy in the world. But, you know, he was another guy who wrote a book in 1998 or 99 called Consilience. And you mentioned, I think you mentioned my title called the consilient, head of consilient research. People are like, what the heck is he talking about? So consilient is, of course, derived from consilience. And consilience is this idea of unification of knowledge. And so what, what, what Wilson argued, and, and of course, I'm very sympathetic to this argument, is that um, we've we made enormous strides as a world with reductionism, right? So scientifically, we break things down into their components and understand the pieces. Fantastic. It's gotten us very far. But he's saying, like, the next wave of what we need to do is, again, working across disciplines. So the, most of the vexing, interesting issues stand at the intersection of disciplines. And hence, we need consilience. We need this idea of bringing ideas together in order for us to proceed. And I think investing is one of the, you know, Robert Hatcham wrote the great book, you know, Investing in the Last Liberal Art. You know, investing is one of the ultimate consilient industries, right? I mean, it's like, this is, this is why it's such a pain in the ass and why it's such a joy, right? Every day, because you never got, you've never got this game licked ever, but at the same time, it's an exhilarating journey, right? To learn and to evolve and, and to be proven wrong and to be proven right and so forth. So. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. Let me hand it over to John to see if we have any audience questions. Well, thank you so much, uh, Saurabh and Michael. I'm afraid we're bulging with questions <laughs> over here. Uh, let's see how many we can fit into the hour. Um, Christopher Sai uh, writes in, uh, an investor I admire in New York. He says, what's your starting point to normalizing some of the upfront costs that subscription businesses have and getting to an understanding of steady state economics? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and, and uh, it's a trick, it's a very hard one. So we wrote a big piece about this earlier this year about the economics of customer lifetime businesses or subscription businesses. And we try to talk about that. And, and I think Christopher's question is exactly right, which is you need to think about, uh, you know, and, these, and they're really probably S-curves, right? You need to think about where you are in the life cycle. And that requires uh, an assessment of the total addressable market, right? So how, it, just a measure of where you are with penetration and uh, what your competition's likely to do. So those things are tricky uh, things to sort out. But um, yeah, and there, and there, I think that there, there's stuff floating around where people, because I actually had this conversation with Trent Griffin. You guys all know Trent Griffin, right? So uh, Trent was asking me like, what's, what are the normalized metrics that a, a subscription a CEO of a subscription business should be thinking about? And again, it depends a little bit on the business itself or if it's pure software versus some other kind of service. But yeah, I would just, I would think, of, so that piece, I, we wrote about this and that piece is the best I can say on this because what happens, of course, is your customer acquisition costs change through the life cycle. Uh, what happens is the retention numbers change through the life cycle. Um, and so there, there are dynamics that are moving around. So figuring out steady state is, it kind of be, can be very tricky for new industries. And again, this is where base rates also may be helpful, right? To think about what we've seen in the past and how, how things have unfolded and so forth. So I would refer back to that report. I, I've got nothing to add to that. We spent a lot of time on that report. I think that's got a lot of good stuff in it. Um, 
I would have very, it's a great question, by the way, and I have very little to add to, based on beyond what we wrote about. Here's a little invitation to speculate, but I think it's a good speculation. Uh, why do you think companies are so guarded about disclosing the split between discretionary, i.e., growth SGNA, and non discretionary or maintenance SGNA <laughs> when it can often have a significant and favorable effect on valuation? The truth is, I don't think they know the answer. The truth is, I don't think they know the answer. And by the way, I'll just mention there's a there was a paper that got me very excited and I was slow to, to, to really work on this, but it's a paper from 2018 in Management Science. It's public, it was written by Luminita Anake and Anup Srivastava. Uh, they're now both at University of Calgary. And it's about, you know, the, the title's something like, should we co-mingle investment and, and maintenance SGNA? So it's, 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 it's something along those lines and where they actually tackled this issue. I'll give you one example on this. Uh, I was a friend of mine is the former chief marketing officer for Coca-Cola, right? So he was in charge of a multi-billion dollar budget. And I'm working on this maintenance versus right discretionary thing. So I call him up and I'm like, hey, you know, you had this gargantuan budget. How did you guys, and you know, obviously you need to spend some money just to be competitive with Pepsi and other, other beverage companies around the world. Uh, how, how did you think about maintenance versus discretionary investment? He goes, that's not how we thought about it. He's like, that's not how we do it. We get, we get a budget from the board. And then he's like, I basically like broke it down by region. And then I let the regional managers do whatever they wanted. So they don't think about it that way, I think to a large degree. Now, I will just say that this is to me, this I, I mentioned at the outset, I mean, this is a very exciting time because we don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. And there's a recent paper, there, even the last few months, there's a nice new paper by Iqbal and Srivastava and Raj Kapal from Columbia and, and at least one other author where they are really starting to do some specifics by industry of breaking down what percent of SGNA should be treated as a, a discretionary investment versus maintenance. And then they, uh, they actually did some really interesting work on amortization periods, so the useful life of the assets. So, so this is like fast and furious, right? The, the research is really happening as we speak, which is super exciting. And it's important, it's actually useful to stay on top of it a little bit. I think there's some stuff going on. So in the Amazon report we wrote, we're classifying for clarity, where we talked about Amazon, we actually use the Iqbal Shrivastava numbers as applied to Amazon uh, to try, and, and they're using Farmer French industry classifications to try to uh, get, a, get a handle on that. So again, it's imprecise, uh, just to be clear, it's imprecise, but uh, as I mentioned before, I think it's a step toward reality. And that's really the main thing we wanna do is get closer to understanding the underlying economics. Michael, um, and I'm indulging my own question here. <laughs> sorry, sorry to everyone in the queue, but um, can you bring base rates into this a little bit? Um, in other words, I'm, I'm curious when you see a company trading at 50 plus times sales, um, what are you thinking, you know, in the context of, of base rates? Yeah. So thank you for the question. And so just so we're super clear, I, I already alluded to it, but base, basic, base rates means that we're going to think about our problem not as unique but rather as an instance of a reference class. So the first challenge is what is the appropriate reference class? And many times we just do simple things like companies of a particular size of revenues, right? And then that allows, so let's just, I'm gonna make this up. Let's say the company's 2 billion in revenues. Then we're gonna look at every company historically that had at that point of $2 billion of revenues, we can adjust for inflation and so forth. And look at the distribution, five-year, three-year, five-year, 10-year distribution of sales growth rates, right? So now I have this distribution. So, you know, from, from really fast growth to very slow growth, right? And so that is, I think, gonna allow you to understand, you would just say, with an, if I were naive, I would have some sense of what that number looks like. Okay, and by the way, and we recently communicated, one, one example we use in our discussions is Peloton. So an analyst, I just picked an analyst report. It's not to pick on the analyst because I think that was consensus of the time, but the analyst in September of 2020, right? So roll back over a year ago, he forecasted that they would grow something like 30% for a decade. And, and you know, they, they, were, they were a little over a billion of revenues or 1.8 billion of revenues, I think. So the question is how many companies with 1.8 billion revenues ever grown 30% a year for 10 years? And the answer is it happens, one or, you know, one or 2%. But if it's a 2% probability, do you set, do you make that your base case? No, probably not, right? You, you'd be much more moderate. And you might say, I'm really bullish. I think it's a 20% scenario, right? Fine. Um, now, what, John, just to, to, the one thing I would just say, the piece we wrote in this earlier this year is I think that intangible, the other thing, I, I sort of left this aside, but intangible assets have different characteristics than tangible assets. And some of those characteristics are really bullish and some of them are very bearish, right? So it's it just, they're different. So 
uh, and the, one bullish one is scalability, but a second one that's not as bullish is obsolescence. Okay, so what we did is we, we rerun the base rates and we, we discovered that those industries that are most in, intangible intensive have faster growth rates on average, but they also have big standard deviations, right? So in other words, there are some companies that grow much faster than what we've seen historically, and some that decline much faster than what we've seen historically. So to me, base rates are not like tablets handed down on high, right? That they're, they, this, is the, this is the word. They are living and breathing and dynamic things. And so as we have more intangibles in our society, we're gonna, those distributions are gonna shift their form to some degree. Um, so one way to deal with that is, by the way, is not to throw away any of the historical data, but rather to weight it. So you'd say, I'm going to weight the more recent past more than the distant past. And then that, that gives you a little bit of a better way to think about distribution. So, so thank you for that question. It's not an indulgent. I think it's an incredibly important thing. And I think that it's another tool that's vastly underutilized. It's, it's when you, again, explain it to people, everybody gets it, but almost nobody does it. And then the last thing I'll just say, this is, I mean, Kahneman Tversky wrote this in 1973, but the key is you blend your own analysis with the base rate. So it's not all one or the other. It's a combination of those two. And there's, a, there's actually some mathematical ways to do that. So, so again, I'm not saying throw away your analysis uh, and only rely on the base rate. I'm saying you need to meld them in an intelligent fashion to give you the best sense of is 50 times sales going to make sense or not. Here's a, a slightly technical questions, question <laughs> from the audience. Uh, how reliable or unreliable is using change in net operating assets as an estimate for reinvestment in the business? Um, I mean, I, I would really have to see how that's defined. So I, net operating assets to me would be equivalent to investor capital calculation, right? So it's Delta investor capital. And so as I broke down before, you know, no PAT minus investment, in theory, investment equals Delta investor capital from one period to the next. It gets, it gets messier in real life because of other stuff, but that's in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. So that's actually, I don't think it's horrible, right? So one of the things we talk about is, our, there are limitations to this as well, but one of the things we talk about is ROIIC, right? Return on incremental investor capital. And the classic way we would look at that is it might be that same definition or slightly modified definition as the denominator of how much money have I invested so which you can look at Delta net assets, or you can look at Delta invested capital. And then we look at Delta profits, Delta notepad in the numerator. We tend to lag these and do multi-year just to take out noise. And when you, when you start to do that, as an analyst, I should do three-year and five-year rolling. You get a sense of on the margin, are incremental returns going up or incremental returns going down? I think that actually can be fairly helpful. Now, Again, a lot of it is some industries are very smooth or you know, retailers, for example, where they're adding stores all the time. Others are very lumpy where they're making big, you know, periodic big investments. So it gets a little tricky from one industry to the next. But, but yeah, I think that's actually, if, if I understand the question, that's uh, not a bad way to go. Michael, maybe one last question here. And my apologies to everyone whose questions we didn't get to. What discount rate for equities do you use in today's interest rate environment? Should yep. the 10-year yield still be the risk-free rate upon yep. which we compare financial yep. This is a great question. And by the way, you know, I always like to say to people, like, and I have a lot of friends who are in this camp, you know, they're Fed, Federal Reserve and Central Bank complainers, and so they're always complaining about all this stuff. And so uh, I, I always say to them, like, uh, you should complain about the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world on your own time. It could be your hobby. That's great. But, but when you're doing your job, your job is to make money. Okay. So like, and your job is to be embedded in reality. So like all this other stuff you can do, but like, let's focus on what's real. And I think that, you know, tell me what volume trade the 10-year treasury note yield, the treasury note trades every day. It's like a gargantuan thing, right? So we're, where we are, 140 or 150 on the 10-year. That's reality. So that's the world we live off of. And by the way, almost everything is pegged off of that, including credit spreads and so on and so forth. So what I do is I actually really like the work by Aswath the Motor. And every month he publishes an equity risk premium on his website to which you add the risk-free rate. And that gives you an expected equity return. By the way, I think the most recent reading was 6.3%, which is nominal, by the way. So if you just go to the 10-year break-evens, I think inflation expectations are still around 2.5%. So you're talking about 3.5%, 4% real, which doesn't seem horrible to me. Now, I'll just mention quickly, I was like, all right, well, how good is this demotoring thing, right? So we just did this the other day. We went back uh, to 1961, where his data starts. So we have 60 years of data now. And we actually just plotted on the x-axis uh, as was 10-year forecast, you know, equity risk premium, uh, market, well, it's market risk premium plus risk-free. So market return expected. And then the actual return, total total share returns has to be 500. And it comes up to about a 0.7 correlation. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. 
And in contrast, you hear, uh, this is some of the Buffett acolytes, uh, including some, many of my good friends go, oh, I use 10% for everything. So we tested versus this 10% for everything, which, which of course, you, because you're getting one data point. But anyway, it's a much less robust way to think about future excess returns. So I would say, uh, A, be embedded in reality. Don't wish away like I think it should. By the way, the new McKinsey valuation book, which came out a year and a half ago, they said we should create a synthetic risk-free rate. Like, what is that, right? And, I, and again, they're talking to corporates, but what is that? That makes no sense to me. And then the other thing is, in your cost of capital, there are a lot of market-based touchdowns, right? We have credit spreads. Bonds trade all the time, right? That's a, I mean, unless you're going to say the, you know, the bond market is, again, I don't know what it is in the U.S. For U.S. corporates are 10 to $15 trillion, right? Unless you say that's all wrong. That's, that's, a, that's a touchstone. You have even things like implied volatility, you have credit default swaps. There are market-based touchstones that should guide you a little bit in understanding what the return on equity should be. And it's not, you know, again, so it's not, you shouldn't have to make it up. There's some ways to get yourself in the, in the neighborhood that I think are pretty sensible that you should avail yourself of. So by the way, I, I think this analysis says across the board, notwithstanding another very good year for equities in 2021, across the board, I expected returns should be quite muted. I mean, people should just acknowledge that certainly in the States. It's a, you know, again, it, there, there may be a lot of dispersion, so you can still make really good excess returns, but, but the, if you just said buy the benchmark, it's going to be, it's going to be a tricky, at least the current numbers suggest a, a, a fairly muted return expectation. You know, historically we've been six to 7% real, as I mentioned, now we're probably more like three and a half to 4% real. So not quite half, maybe 60 to two thirds of the historical returns is what a reasonable expectation should be at this point. Well, we'll wrap it up. Uh, this has been just terrific. And uh, Michael, I have to say, I particularly enjoyed that anecdote about Rolston Purina and getting <laughs> invited by Bill Stiritz. I mean, what a wonderful lesson in um, creating serendipity by going the extra mile and deliver delivering value to others. And I think uh, we can all uh, kind of frame that and put it on the wall and, and remind ourselves of uh, every day, because that is just such a great lesson, not just for business and investing, but life in general. Thank you so much, Michael, Sarab. It's been a real pleasure. Thank everybody too. And happy holidays and best wishes for a great new year. Cheers. Cheers Bye. to everybody. Goodbye for now.